You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. You're playing the most phenomenal game ever created. Your skin grows cold from your first glimpse of the enormous beast. It's a product of your imagination. Survival depends on a quick, decisive move. Your choices are limited. Stand and fight, or run. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. Win the treasure. TSR Hobbies. Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. everybody and welcome to GeekFest France. My name is Carlos Perón and today we are going to be tackling a first time subject and that is music. Music keeps coming up left and right in our shows but we are going to basically categorize it now and start from the beginning in terms of what kind of music affected me personally through my life that helped shape you know the interests that I have now as far as music goes. We're going back to the 70s here and the early 80s, because that's kind of when it all started for me, music-wise. Then we're going to go take a look at a comic book, a movie adaptation of Planet of the Apes, a surprisingly great compilation that I found that so far seems to be the best movie adaptation I've ever read. And after that, we are going to return to our childhood as we usually do but we're bringing it to the future or to the present if you will with dungeons and dragons recently had a uh, opportunity or excuse to dig up all my D &D (laughs) materials that i had and in traditional fashion reacquire things that i've lost throughout the years so we can set up an actual D D game with my family and you'll hear all about that today on Geek Fest Trans. Let's get started. Uh, what kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. Yeah. How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? Do you mind if we dance with your dates? Why, no, not at all. Go right ahead. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We just washed the hair. No, I worked on my hair a long time and he hit it. He hits my hair. what? I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. Today we're going to dig a little deep into our musical segment, 
with a little in-depth view of my particular musical interests, it's easy to classify, and a lot of people do this in terms of, well, I'm into this music or I'm into that music. And when people are either by themselves or even in a group and they put music on, a lot of times people seem to fall into one category. They'll only listen to one sort of music. I know I'm making a general statement that a lot of times when you make general statements, they're not that true. But I just find it that most people seem to be into one type of music. And that's okay. I mean, hey, some people are into one type of movies, you know, or one type of books that they read. But in my particular case, and I would imagine it might have to do with movies in terms of the fact that I have always been so interested in films. And films are a gateway to a lot of things, not only different genres, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different sounds, a lot of different music. And that's one of the ways that I had been introduced to different types of music, not only uh, from listening to the radio, but when I did start purchasing music on my own, you know, when you're actually putting your dollars down, uh, you know, and selecting something you want to listen to. It came from, I believe, offshoots of movies. There's plenty of music that I listen to that you were never going to hear on the radio and you never heard on the radio. And that deals more with soundtracks. Obviously, most major cities, you know, when I lived in the New York area, and I'm sure even here in Florida, you are capable of finding classical stations. But my introduction into what would be considered classical music is in the form of soundtracks. And that's something that, again, you, you do not get exposed to unless you are watching a lot of movies and then heading in that direction of, well, the music sounded really cool. Where, what was it? Where can I hear it? How can I hear it? But because I consider myself to be very open to music in terms of the different kinds of music that are out there, I know in the past I've talked about how the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack was my first record that I owned outright. And you're talking about the late 70s, and you're also talking about me not even being in this country at that time. I don't remember being a very excessive radio listener, you know, when I was, you know, eight or seven or nine years old or younger. I honestly do not remember listening to the radio, but I do remember having music in the house, and obviously it belonged to my parents. The earliest album I can think of that maybe started me in the direction some of the tastes that I have now and have had throughout different parts of my life is probably came from a cassette my parents had, which was called The Music for UNICEF Concert, A Gift of Song. And this was a compilation of different artists of the time, American, British artists that did a concert, a charity concert for UNICEF. And for the time, these were pretty big, big stars. That's where, you know, I got to hear Earth, Wind, and Fire, Olivia Newton-John, Rod Stewart, Donna Summers, Andy Give. I can kind of see how that would kind of springboard me to jump over to the Saturday Night Fever soundtracks, you know, the Bee Gees, being exposed to the Bee Gees at that time. And I'll say it again, if I was older in the 70s, 
it might have been easier or more logical to be exposed to music. You know, if I was going to school with an older crowd, music might have been more important. I don't know. I'm basing it on on a different culture and I'm basing it on how things are here now and how exposed we are to music, you know, in so many different manners. But I would imagine maybe that's what it would have been like. If I was in my late teens, let's say, for example, I might have been going to dance clubs. Who knows? I might have been in in some kind of school, maybe, where there's more music exposed, more dances, and you have to, you know, you end up listening to more current music. And even back then, and as it happens in many countries, American and British music permeate, usually, through a lot of different places. In this particular uh, cassette that I'm talking about, this music for UNICEF, you also had ABBA. ABBA was a huge international group, and it still rakes in the money these days. Um, so who knows? Maybe it would have helped. I don't know. I have no idea. Now, like I mentioned before, Saturday Night Fever, I never saw the movie when I was young. I was too young to see it. But the music, the music, I remember it being out there, and that became like the first album that I actually purchased. I don't even think I purchased it with my own money, because I don't even think I had any money when I was that young. But I think it was the first album my parents purchased. I mentioned, like I said, I'm, I'm repeating my story here, but because it was expensive, it was a common practice back then, to you could buy albums uh, without covers. So I was able to get the album, you know, the two album set, just the albums in the little bags uh, without the cover, which sounds absolutely ridiculous nowadays. It's the only thing you can you can kind of compare that to is at some point, and I don't know if, if this still happens or it used, I know I think it used to happen, people who, who would buy cigarettes sometimes would buy them single because they couldn't afford the whole pack. <laughs> so I guess that's kind of how it was with, with, with music back then, you know, at least in in, in the in the in the mid to late seventies in Uruguay, um, I could only afford the record and not the cover. <laughs> but anyway, once I got to the states, you know, with pretty bare bones interest in music, you know, the floodgates opened up. I started going to school. You had music on the radio everywhere you went. Kids were listening to stuff in school, and just the environment. Keep in mind, we came to New York. New York is pretty much the center of the universe in a way you have so many different cultures there as opposed to if you would have moved in the middle of somewhere in some little town in the midwest or something where you are you know sometimes 80 90 percent one thing and that's the one thing we had so by being in new york just by the nature of being in new york starting school here i think i was in fourth grade i remember we used to have a class uh, this is a very long time ago, but we used to have a class where, for one period, people would bring in music. And as long as it wasn't <laughs> not allowed or questionable lyrics, let's say, or something like that, you could play your song and then somebody else plays their song and everybody gets to listen to music. But I do remember that was one of the things. And even as early as back then, I remember somebody brought in Pink Floyd's The Wall, Another Brick in the Wall. Now, this is an album that obviously I eventually got and a lot of the albums that I got when I was that age at a certain point I like many other people joined the Columbia House Record Club you know for one penny you could pick 12 albums and then you have to buy I don't know four or five more at regular club prices if you remember that scam <laughs> it wasn't a bad deal it was you know you never know I've joined that club I remember for I think I did it for 
for records. Uh, then I started ordering cassettes through them, I believe. Then I started ordering VHS movies. And I believe, if I remember right, I might have gotten as far as Laserdiscs. Because I think Laserdiscs were still part of Columbia House. I hope I'm not wrong. But yeah, I, I, I've been through those Columbia House. <laughs> and then... <laughs> There were times I remember where you could you could rejoin under a different name or a different person in your house or a different address or you, you know you have them sent to your grandparents' house or something. It was a, it was great. It was just just great. I mean, hey, tell you know, I always completed my contracts, so you know, there's no no scam going on here. But that was one way of getting a lot of you know a lot of records. And Pink Floyd's The Wall, I remember, was a very I don't want to say very, but for a for a 9, 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid, it was somewhat of a controversial thing because they were playing another brick in the wall and that was, they had kids talking about how they don't need no education and you're playing that in a school and people were like, uh-oh, they're not going to like this one, you know, that kind of thing. So there was a, a certain stigma attached to that song that it was uh, almost like a rebellious song to play, you know, in a school environment. Again, you're a preteen kid, you don't see the artistic part of the song the adult nature of the album as a whole and the, and what the artist is trying to portray here in this album you know this person that is fighting his inner demons and all that stuff you never really got to experience that that young however the movie was put out by alan parker and the movie is pretty serious in terms of what is going on with this character uh, in the movie but again as a youngster you have no clue so at the time, that was my traditional rock infusion, you know. I, I don't think you could consider it heavy metal. And at that point, I don't think there was such thing as heavy metal, at least in schools. It, that happened, as far as I remember, more towards my junior high years, where the more heavy metal-ish bands started, you know, popping. The other thing is that during that time, there was the era of old-school hip-hop and wasn't I don't even think it was called hip-hop back then it was more rap music it was the beginning of rap music but it was old school it was the beginning and especially I remember in junior high school that was when rap was exploding everywhere it was exploding on the radio there were radio stations urban stations that specialized in that kind of music and i remember i would listen to that sometimes my first official purchase i guess of an old school rap type of uh, artist was curtis blows the breaks i absolutely love that song i still do i use it in one of my opens it's just such a, a fun little song and this is a a time where what would today be considered, I guess, hip-hop or whatever, because there's so many subgenres now, even within that genre. It, it, it was a more basic structure to what was happening. It was a social commentary. It hadn't gotten to the gangster rap phase that it did later, like in the 90s. I don't know if you can call it a cleaner, a fresher. It, it was just different. It was different. It was fun. You had all these different groups popping up. And... It was a very heavy, heavy part of my junior high school experience because, again, you're in New York. You're exposed to different things. Also, I would say around that time, for a different flavor of what would we consider rock, Blondie. I bought Parallel Lines probably when I was, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade maybe around that time, which, again, it had the, when it came to songs that, now, granted, you know, I've never been a very um, lyrical 
individual in terms of examining and interpreting lyrics. I'm more of a music person. I like the tune. I like the music. I like the instruments. The lyrics is something that was always secondary to me. Granted, you know, if you kind of start to learn the lyrics of something, you can kind of sing along with it and whatever. But to me, I was more musical. But I do remember there was the, just like Pink Floyd's The Wall, when you brought it to school, there was that, ooh, it's it's a rebellious song. About, well, uh, you know, about anti-school, let's say, for example. With Blondie, I remember it was like, there's a song in here called... Heart of Glass, which was a huge hit. I mean, this this Parallel Lines album had so many hits in it. Uh, let's see. Well, Hanging on the Telephone, I love that one. Heart of Glass, that was her huge hit. One Way or Another, another huge hit. You know, this was her big, you know, explosive album that brought them all to, you know, to the forefront. Now, remember, Blondie was a combination. It was rock, but it also had a lot of, like, punk roots in it. And punk is something I never really got into as much as some of these other things there are certain things i've never 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 got into obviously certain types of world music if you break up world music into specific like reggae or this or that or the other i never got in those directions too much but for mainstream type of music even punk music i never went in that direction i never went in the country music country western music direction which Again, maybe it's because I was in New York, and the, I think there was only one country music station, and I just, I, country music never, never appealed to me. It still does not appeal to me. With that said, you know, I could appreciate when I was younger some Charlie Daniels, because, you know, these are crossover songs that cross over into the Billboard, you know, the top 50, top 100, whatever. Some of these songs kind of do cross over, and they work. You know, if you listen to a lot of the Eagles, for example, there is some country roots in their in their, in their their songs. Uh, they're not considered to be country, a country band, but stuff like that happens. Now, with Charlie Daniels, don't get me wrong, you know, I can appreciate, you know, the devil went down to Georgia, but I cannot appreciate the man's politics. And as I got older, you know, the more I hear an individual's politics, the more turned off I am to their music. But you can't deny when you have a good song in terms of, and again, like I mentioned, I am not a lyrical person. I I do not over-examine the lyrics. I do not do that, especially when I was younger. When I was older and now I'm a little more um, picky. And I'm a little more inquisitive when it comes to those things. But yeah, country music, punk, even heavy metal, I was never that into into heavy metal. But like it kept happening and it does now. Sometimes you have those crossover events where certain artists start to cross into pop. Are you a genre TV, film, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, toy, and convention nerd? Nerds! Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Do you ever wish you could co-host a podcast? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. This just might be your chance. Somebody help me! Help me! Help me! Help me! Shut up! Kickfest Rants is looking for new co-hosts. If you're interested, go to our homepage at geekfestrants.com and click on the hosting icon for more information. So yeah, Blondie was another one, like I mentioned. Curtis Blow was my first owned rap, uh, rap, (laughs) old school rap. 
disco was still very prominent in the time, and I, I do have my share of Village People albums and Donna Summer. Donna Summer, I absolutely loved. She was also part of this music uh, for UNICEF concert uh, lineup. And through Columbia House, I've got, I think, two or three of her double albums, and it's just, it's just a litany of hits of that time. I also used to watch on TV Solid Gold, which was the more, you know, you had American Bandstand, but then you had Solid Gold. And Solid Gold is the gateway for dance fever in a way. <laughs> and it's the gateway to Soul Train. So there's this other world of music and performance on television back in the early 80s that gave you an entire other perspective on things. But Solid Gold seemed to kind of grab a lot of these things and throw them to you at you know once a week in in a visual format, and that's where again you would you would hear some of these type of performers you know do their thing. My biggest from this time person that I kind of grabbed onto, I think performer that I grabbed onto, I think would be Huey Lewis and the News. They had some preliminary attempts <laughs> at hits, and they did have some minor hits in the early '80s. And they even performed in shows like Solid Gold, for example, with their minor hits. But not until Sports came out, their sports album from 1983. Again, this is another Columbia house. And it's funny because if I'm looking at my records, I remember if you look in the back, a lot of them even say specifically uh, published or printed for Columbia House. But anyway, their sports album all of a sudden had, you know, the, these specific hits that I've been listening to on the radio and watching. You know, it's also the early 80s. MTV is starting. Cable is popping. You know, I didn't get cable till later because cable didn't arrive in the area where I lived till much later in the 80s. But we had Friday night videos, NBC's version of MTV in one hour for the people that didn't have MTV. We had U68, I mentioned this a while back, this was a UHF channel, if anybody understands what UHF means, where the reception was horrible, 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 but they played music videos. So it was like the low rent <laughs> version of MTV. This is channels where you would get not only, I mean, you would get somewhat known videos, but you also would get performances like from Weird Al Yankovic and Dr. Demento and all these weird offshoot musical acts, if you will, that normally don't uh, make it to the, you know, to the big leagues. But with Huey Lewis and the News, it's a band that I, I absolutely loved in the beginning. To me, it is the perfect example of rock and roll at least in the early stages of, of their careers, because to me, it's like a combination of modern rock and classic rock. And by classic rock, I'm not talking about the 60s. I'm talking about Chuck Berry. As far as I'm concerned, the originator of what rock and roll music was and should be and is, and it's no longer that anymore, obviously. But Huey Lewis had a perfect combination of traditional Chuck Berry-style rock and roll and modern rock and roll for 1983, at least for that era of rock that no longer exists. Yes, you had your Van Halens, which went a little further. They're not exactly heavy metal, but they're also not exactly Huey Lewis pop kind of rock. You know, they're a little harder than regular. But my Huey Lewis album is one of my, my favorite ones. And to this day, I mean, the music they did with Back to the Future, Power of Love, which is my favorite all-time song, perfect. That's perfection as far as you know, that type of rock goes. But the, the sports album is the one that started it all. And again, it's another one of my Columbia House purchases. Another album that I own through Columbia House, which is weird because you would hear some of the songs on the radio, not 
too many of them, but you would watch the videos, and the videos were very uh, different. Uh, I'm talking about Billy Idol's Rebel Yell album. And in that album, you had a couple of awesome, awesome hits, like obviously Rebel Yell, which didn't get a lot of airtime on the radio as far as I'm concerned. Now, Eyes Without a Face, that got more airtime. Catch My Fall got some airtime. But if you watch the music videos, and because depending on where they were playing, you know, Friday night videos didn't happen until I think it was like 10 o'clock at night or something. They purposely pushed those later because some of these videos were slightly adultish. And with Billy Idol, you know, he's a hard rocker. He's, I guess you could kind of call him, he's got his, he's got his punk roots, but at the time he was crossing over into a more mainstream type of rock. Uh, it was a harder edge rock than your Huey Lewis, that's for sure. But there you had music videos that, that could be played at night and with songs like Rebel Yell and Flesh for Fantasy. Now, with those type of songs, especially Flesh for Fantasy, you're now dealing into some very mild, I don't want to say adult themes, but pseudo, somewhat slightly pornographic imagery, which, again, it's absolutely nothing now. But back then, it was a little more edgy than your normal thing. And... That was the thing about this album was that, you know, I, when you used to buy albums, you, you know, you bought them for the songs you were aware of, but then you got other songs that you somehow knew in the background. It's like, oh my God, this is the guy who made that other song. It's a completely different world now. You rarely buy full-blown albums anymore. People just buy, the, you know, the individual songs, if they even buy them, and they customize what they're downloading and that sort of thing. But back then, there was a randomness to buying music because sometimes you ended up with an album that have the songs completely sucked and you hated then a quarter of the songs you were aware of and the other quarter might be songs that you didn't know that guy performed in the first place and they were like bonus oh great i got these extra songs that i never knew were part of this album so that was uh again that was a part of the rock side so you know i had my rap old school side i had my rock you know, I had my disco. I wasn't letting go of disco. And I know that disco, in a way, kind of led to, was one of the <laughs> gateways to the rap side. Just like a lot of other things going, you know, rock <laughs> rock can lead to punk. And rock can lead to heavy metal. And rock <laughs> can lead to speed metal. And, and you know, it, things are connected. I understand that. But the other part of my early record collections, as I mentioned earlier today, had to do with soundtracks. Soundtracks opened up an entire crazy, crazy world of music that I never really thought I would be interested in. Obviously, the, the closest connection to soundtrack scores are, you know, classical music. I never followed classical music. Uh, you know, I, I would be able to identify a song in terms of, oh, that's, that's an important song. That's a classical song, not just classical in its style, in its category, but it's classical. It's a very well-known historical musical thing that people somehow used to listen to now obviously back then i guess you had to be rich to be able to go to a concert and listen to a performer there was no way of taking that music with you unless you have like sheet music and you play it on a piano or something but obviously if you want to hear the full orchestra the way it was meant to be heard it's not going to happen not until you have mass-produced musical manner of listening to things uh, recorded uh, somehow but anyway with soundtracks you got to keep in mind that you have two different things going on a lot of times a soundtrack would have contemporary music or modern music or not necessarily modern music but different types of songs that are used in a movie but then you have a score an actual orchestral score 
So sometimes some of these movies would put out a score and a soundtrack. Sometimes they would only put out one that had a combination of both, some score elements and some soundtrack elements. A perfect example, like I mentioned earlier, Back to the Future. The Back to the Future soundtrack has music by the composer and music by artists, rock artists, old rock artists and newer rock artists. So that is what kind of threw me in another direction, you know, in terms of, wait a minute, uh, I'm now discovering certain musical artists that I didn't know at the time, you know, contemporary artists, but then it would throw me into the, well, who's this John Williams guy? And why is he so damn good at making really interesting music? And who is this Vangelis guy? And who is this Basil Polidotis guy? You know, that's one of the things. And one of the earliest, uh, aside from, now I'm not talking about the basic food groups here. <laughs> <laughs> which is John Williams and Star Wars or or a lot of Spielberg-related stuff. I'm talking about when scores start to get a little different and weird and good weird, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Vangelis, one of the earliest soundtracks that I got again through Columbia House. It sounds like I'm doing a, a commercial for Columbia House. I don't even think it exists anymore, to tell you the truth, is the soundtrack for Blade Runner. Now, the movie Blade Runner in itself, and I think I've done shows about it, it's a whole other world in terms of Things were happening in that movie that I had never seen before. Things that stick. And you continue to think about and continue to think about. But as far as sound goes, just like there are so many movies where the music is almost a character. And I'm not talking about musicals. I'm not talking about movies that people have to stop and start singing. I'm talking about movies that the music just permeates. Saturday Night Fever. The movie is not a musical. I know I like to treat it like a musical. But... The music, it's just so rich in that culture, in that environment what, that we're watching at the time. I mentioned Tron Legacy a couple years ago. Def Punk's score is amazing how it becomes a character almost in terms of you have to pay attention to it. It, it demands attention. And Blade Runner was probably one of my earliest ones, for a sci-fi film at least, where the music in the film became a character in the film and that was one of the earliest ones that i bought little did i understand at the time that this album and i i probably am going to end up having another show about just this the blade runner soundtrack at some point little did i understand at the time that the album they put out was performed by the new american orchestra okay but the film says that the music was performed by you know, conducted and written and performed by Vangelis, which it was. The New American Orchestra did a pretty good job doing their interpretation of the Vangelis score, but little did I know at the time that there were some legal problems going on between Vangelis and filmmakers and the music distributors and blah, 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 that prevented him from releasing his version of the music. So they instead put out an album with another orchestra playing the music like i said before they're pretty close you know they're 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 very good but it was the only way you could hear it at home you know you had the movie you had the you have the soundtrack blade runner wasn't a very merchandisable type of movie and as we talked about it many times before a poster maybe a novel well this was based on an original novel so they had to go with the original novel a couple of magazines soundtrack you gotta put out a soundtrack you gotta make some bucks so this was one that i started to listen to and Wow, did that open up some doors for me in terms of, what is this? This is this is like electronic music? What the heck is electronic music? You know, what is this? this is this, you know, at some point, new wave electronic, electronica, which kind of leads to, you know, dance music, all kinds of different type of music. So again, my taste started to go in that direction too. And other groups started to permeate. 
Tangerine Dream. My God, Tangerine Dream. They're the originals when it comes to all this weird electronic music. Again, you know, this makes me want to say, all right, we'll talk about this in a future show. <laughs> because talk about a history of amazing films and music that goes along with it. You know, Tangerine Dream, they were huge. They were gigantic. But Vangelis, my God, another giant in terms of different kind of music. Sometimes it's very emotional and sometimes it's just plain weird. And it's a, it's a, it's in a way, you know, you can kind of say you do hear some of those sounds when you listen to your Pink Floyd's, your early experimental Pink Floyd type of stuff, the stuff that I can't even listen to. You do hear these weird electronic sounds, but overall, like I said, this is where my music interests have gone my entire life. They go everywhere. They've gone everywhere. I've gone into, I've dipped into jazz a little bit here and there. I visited the blues a little bit. But my main food groups, if you will, are rock, soundtrack scores, and I do go through my waves of different things that come and go. You know, currently I'm in a early 80s, late 70s, old hip-hop rap kind of music, depending on, you know, what's happening in my life at a certain point. Well, recently we started playing D&D, so I've been gathering more and more D&D ish type of music so that's where i grab my conan and my lord of the rings and you know make playlists out of some of those movies but it all starts somewhere you know you start to develop your musical taste at some point now don't get me wrong i can listen to pop music all day long and that was one of the things when we came to florida is that the radio stations were different and I was able to find a couple of classic rock stations. Again, my idea of classic rock is not the 60s. And I understand that for a long time, 60s rock was considered classic rock. No, and not even the 50s I'm talking. I'm talking about 80s rock. So I was able to find some stations that play Van Halen and, and Billy Joel and, you know, 80s type of rock music. But at the same time, you know, I know that at certain parts of the week, uh, on certain stations, you can hear 80s rock old style rap and, and dance music and that sort of thing and if i have a craving for disco i know where i can find all my disco because i have all my casey and the sunshine bands i have my donna summers i have my village people you know i know where to go for that stuff so i think my interests basically fall to where or how i'm feeling at the time but i do have my basic food groups <laughs> always there waiting for me I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. Worst crossover ever. Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? We're looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. For today's comic book segment, we have a movie adaptation. As you guys heard me say in the past, how much I enjoy the movie adaptations and how different they are sometimes. The one we're covering today is Planet of the Apes. It doesn't get more classic sci-fi than that. Um, the original film came out in the late 60s. And at the time, they didn't really merchandise it too much. Practically not at all. But later on... As the sequels started coming out through the early 70s, and then it leading to a television show, a very short-lived television show, 
That's around the time when they started pushing and pumping all the toys. This is 1974 I'm talking about. The movies themselves were you know, starting to air on television, and at the time, television was thought to be the next logical place for it. It didn't last too long, like I mentioned before, but that also led to an animated show, which also did not last too long. It lasted longer than the television show, I believe. But that's, again, the period, you know, when that television show came out in around 1974, when this particular comic book came out, and when the majority of the merchandising for the movie came out. Most of the stuff that you see out there that doesn't look 100% great. It is very early, you know, marketing blitz, if you will. We talk here in this show so many times about how Star Wars revolutionized the merchandising of a film. I would probably say Planet of the Apes probably was the one before Star Wars that had the biggest... Not necessarily success, but the biggest marketing push when it comes to putting out toys. Now, obviously, the franchise outlived all those toys to the extent where, and we'll talk about this in the future, new movies came out, the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes remake came out, then the more modern, you know, Caesar-centric ones, there's one about to come out in a couple of weeks, merchandising for some of those films had its own Life, same thing with publishing, comics, books, making of, art of, you know, all the the, the typical modern uh, merchandising that goes with a film. Not insane Star Wars level marketing, but, and not even, I would say, early, you know, original Planet of the A's level marketing, but it has continued. With this particular film, like I said before, there was no big push in the beginning. So what I have here that I just uh, finished reading is a compilation basically of a series of five comic books that were released by marvel back in 74 that chronicles the first film planet of the apes now i understand they put out a couple more i'm in the process of looking for them this one is all in black and white it has been repackaged (laughs) as they do many many times i mean i know i go through this all the time between marvel and dark horse when it comes to star wars But this particular one was repackaged in 1990 by Malibu Graphics. And it comes in a, you know, in a a soft cover, I would say, packaging. You know, not necessarily a hard cover. It's kind of like a soft cover. The cover in the back are all color. You know, the back even has an actual frame from the drawings inside, colorized. They colored them. They look beautiful. But inside, the whole thing is black and white. And from what I understand, that's kind of how they released it in the first place. So it is very true to its uh, original release, which is something that's good in a way if you think about it for black and white. Because with Star Wars, that's one of the things that they keep doing so many times. And that is, with the different re-releases of Star Wars movie adaptations, at least... What they do is they recolor them or reshade them. You know, they give them a little different color palette. And for some people, I'm sure that's nothing new in terms of, no, it doesn't really matter to me. With me, yeah, sometimes the color palette means something. There is such a difference, in my opinion, between the original Star Wars movie adaptation and some of the more modern ones where they don't touch the art, they just change the color. And they do look so much better sometimes. But what's cool about this is that it's all in one issue. Like I said before, it's five issues originally. It started in 74, it ended in 75, so it kind of overlapped a little bit year-wise. But in this particular case, you know, you get the whole thing in one shot. And what's cool also is that you have an introduction in the beginning of the comic 
by Mike Valerio, who... Now, you got to remember, at the time, he's writing this in 1990. The Tim Burton films haven't come out yet. There's rumors that there's something coming. So he's giving us, in the beginning, a brief history of how Planet of the Apes went from, you know, book to screen to sequels to merchandising to television to animation to graphic novels to books, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you do get that little bonus uh, that it's cool. When they repackage some of these things, you like to feel like they give you a little extra. With Star Wars, I remember same similar situation. Some of them had concept art and sketches and stuff like that that they add, you know, to make it worth a little, give it a little more value than just a rehash, you know. But anyway... We have this comic here. I finished reading it yesterday. It's a quick read. I mean, it's if, if you think about it, like I said, it's the equivalent of five regular-sized comics. And what's cool about it is that some of the things that you cannot do or they could not do in the movie because the special effects were just not there yet, there's a couple of more visual shots of the Icarus as it's flying through space, as it's in the process of crashing, you know, that are really, really cool. I, I remember always seeing the movie, and, and I always loved the design, even though we only got to see it kind of sticking out of the water. And then I've seen conceptual drawings and movie, uh, you know, models and that sort of thing of what the full ship looks like. And I always loved that, and I always wish they could have included that, you know, more in the film. But in the comic, that's part of what's cool about it, is that in the beginning, you do see a lot more of the ship as Taylor is, you know, doing his narrative in the beginning about, you know, how he's disappointed with mankind and he's out on the he's out there. The dialogue overall is spot on. A lot of times when you read some of these comics, it is so abbreviated and at times it even sounds like they rewrote the entire movie because the lines are so chopped up. And I know it's impossible. I'm sure this is not a word-by-word transcribing of the script, but the dialogue is so good in this comic. You know, for the first third of the movie, the first third or quarter of the movie in the comic book, I really dislike Taylor. He is such a pessimist and just such a negative individual. In the movie, I think maybe it's because it's, you see Charlton Heston and he is such a charismatic actor. Even though he's delivering these pessimistic lines... It doesn't come off like that in the movie so much. You kind of do get the general sense that he's not a happy guy. (laughs) He is not a happy guy. But in the comic, and again, this is something that happens. I complain about it all the time. I'm not sure why, but the actors, the human actors, that is, not the apes. The human actors look very, very, very different than they do in the movie. Again, this always goes back to rights. Did they have the rights to use the facial likenesses? Do they only have the rights to use the characters? So they have to purposely make them look different this way. They don't have to pay royalties for using their face on a separate product and that sort of thing. In other words, and it kind of makes sense if you think about it legally. You know, the studio, the the people that made the film own the film. They own the characters. But they can't just outright own the face of the actors automatically, obviously without paying for it. So that's a possibility of why they look so different. And again, this goes back to what I was just saying, that it's part of the reason I think why, as he's delivering all these pessimistic lines, you know, he kind of almost gets into a fight with one of his fellow astronauts, you know, reminding him that everybody's dead. And (laughs) he's like such a, he's such a Debbie Downer. And because he doesn't look like, Charlton Heston. He looks like, you know, generic 
comic book guy, number four, you know, it's like, wow, this guy, you know, if you didn't know anything about this story, if you've never seen the movie, you and you're reading this comic, you could say to yourself, is this guy going to be the bad guy later on in this story? But it's really uh, unusual when you read it. But, you know, obviously, you know which way this is going. So you kind of know it. And, you know, you know that he is the hero of the story. The progression of the story, like I said, it is very, very well done in terms of how scenes follow scenes, how they hit almost every little detail of the film itself. And granted, this thing was done in 74. They had a good, you know, four or five years to study the film, you know, in order to get it right. Not like when we deal with these uh, sometimes early produced movie adaptations where they don't have the proper resources, again, going back to Star Wars, and they're trying to just imagine or figure it or wing it. Here, they, they kind of have it all, so it's kind of cool that, you know, they are able to do it. But I have never read a comic adaptation, and I have a, quite a number of them here, where they do get it so right. Maybe it's because they spread it out over five volumes. They have the actual amount of space needed to cover you know, the more important parts of the movie. And granted the, that the comic book, you know, has the same problem that most comic books have, is that when you have a prolonged amount of action, in a visual sense, in a movie, with the comic book, some of the characters have to kind of narrate that action so that the reader gets a better explanation or a better sense of what's happening. You see a guy leaping forward, and you might have something that says, Oh, I th if I jump on him right now and knock him off the horse, that will really do the trick. You know, something where it's describing the action to help you understand what the artist is trying to portray in some of those shots. So we do get a lot of that som sometimes. One scene that's a little different, and, and I, I wonder why, is when the astronauts are going for a swim. I remember in the movie, very clearly, they get naked and they jump in the water. And granted, this is, you know... 1969, I believe. So the ratings are different, and you can kind of get away with just a little bit more than you do these days when it comes to PG-rated films, that sort of thing. But in the comic book, they chose to give them either underwear or bathing. I don't think they're bathing suits, and I guess they would strip down to their underwear. And you see them jumping in, and they're wearing their underwear. I don't understand why they did that. I think they could have gotten, especially in the comic book, you could have drone it in a certain manner where you can block out certain things so that you don't have to have a nude character if that is a concern. I'm assuming that was a concern back then for Marvel. So it's a little surprising that they chose to, you know, when they're going to deviate somewhere, they're going to deviate over there. So that seemed a little odd, but it's just a, a, a nitpicky little thing. The other thing is that, again, the manner in the movie where the apes are revealed during the hunt the actual hunt in the fields, they purposely kind of block out who the riders of the horses are until a certain scene where you actually seen them full blown. They kind of tease the audience. It's the Jaws formula of tease, tease, tease. Then you show the shark. Here in the movie, from what I remember, they tease you a little bit and then they show you this close up. Like I think it's like a medium shot that goes to a close up of the face of the ape. And obviously, you can't do that on a comic book. You can't do camera moves on a comic book. So the manner in which, you know, the hunt begins, and then they recognize the writers, and boom, it's like, boom, they're apes. And they, you know, there's the reaction. Oh, my God, they're apes. You know, that kind of a reaction. It's kind of abrupt, in my opinion. I, I wish they could have done it a little more subtle. But yeah, I understand that this is one of the limitations, uh, of the many limitations, of using a comic book format. You can't 
do certain cinematic things that, you know, are more effective, uh, you know, when you see it in the movies. On the other hand, you know, if you figure that, for example, I've mentioned before, you know, we don't want to show anybody naked, you know, it's, it's for kids. The opposite kind of happens, I think, on the scene where Taylor escapes and he's running through the city and he's looking for a place to hide and he runs into a museum, what looks like a museum, but they're also having a funeral inside, I remember. But at one point, he's like hiding through the halls. There's a little chimp kid that kind of spots him, so he has to run out again. And all of a sudden, he runs into Dodge, I believe was his name, uh, one of the other astronauts that apparently got caught. And he is kind of on display on the museum side as almost like an animal in terms of he seems to be stuffed and dead, like like a stuffed animal in a museum, like a museum of natural history type of thing. Well, he's standing there and, you know, it's a shocking scene. It's like, oh my God, that's what happened to my friend type of scene, which is pretty shocking in the film. In the comic, they, instead of him running into him, you know, standing up as a figure, as a display, they have his head mounted on the wall, like a trophy, like a hunting trophy, which I personally think it's 10 times more horrific (laughs) if you think about it, than the the film version. So it's kind of weird how, where they decide to make certain changes. In this case, I'm like, wow, I'm surprised they they took that route. But overall, like I said, because the the overall story is divided into five parts, you can kind of see where, you know, issue one ends, issue two begins. You know, you have a nice big frame page to begin it. You have a cliffhangery, what will happen next, you know, when one issue ends. And it goes like that throughout the uh, rest of the book. It is dead spot on the scenes, the amount of time spent on each scene and, 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 and the attention paid to the information that's being portrayed. It is very well done. I am impressed by far. I would say this is probably the best faithful adaptation of a movie adaptation that I've ever seen so far. I know, like I said before, there are other ones. I'm going to try to hunt them down. I also know that they have them. And because I did pick one up at a convention once, I think it might have been from one of the more future films. It might have been from Beneath the Planet of the Apes, like an issue, I don't know, number five or something. It was a specific one in that particular run. And it was a single issue, but it wasn't color. So I'm wondering if at a certain point they decided to go color or if this is just uh, something different than they did here, it it seems kind of odd to me that they would decide to start with black and white, but I will look into it a little further. And if I can get my hands on some of these, you know, full sets, you know, where you have all five of them, I'll pick them up and I'll continue going through them because again, they're very, very interesting. And, you know, if you happen to be a big apes, you know, fan and you collect the vintage ape stuff, this is something that you probably would love. You can collect them all! You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the Six Million Dollar Man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each, one to display, one to open, and one just in case. All right, on today's Collectibles segment, we look back at something that I used to uh, 
not necessarily collect, but engage in my try at gaming. I've talked about this in the past that I'm not a very big gamer in terms of video games. You know, I did have my Atari 2600 when I was in my early teens and it never really progressed beyond that, you know, into other formats of games. Not until I would say, really not until my kids were into games. My son, I remember into the Wii and then into the Xbox and all these other things, you know, that I kind of appreciated what, you know, what his interests were. I tried playing some of them, but I never really got interested in them. I never really enjoyed them that much. I I love watching all these specially made video sequences, like very filmish looking sequences in between games, especially with Star Wars games where they show you all these characters and the graphics look amazing, you know, in between the game playing part. I can always appreciate those. And whenever they put a new trailer for a new game coming out, you know, I can really uh, admire how fantastic these things look. They're so cinematic. But I think I'm not very patient for gaming, for actually sitting down and going through a whole procedure. Even, you know, going back to the Wii, you know, even before the Wii, when we were playing some games, I remember with my son, uh, like Battlefront and that sort of thing. You know, I enjoyed watching what was happening, but I never really was too much into the playing part. Well, going back now into the 80s again, I remember, and it's almost like a rite of passage, if you have been (laughs) identifying yourself as a nerd or a geek, sooner or later, you're going to hit D&D. And I remember back in, let's see, in my particular case, it was in high school. We had a group of kids that I would occasionally hang out with. Again, you know, they're the, most of them were the the outcasts of the group. You know, that's a typical nerd scenario. And I remember we once were talking about it, and some of us have heard of the game. I've never uh, participated before. So we had decided that we were going to give it a try one day. So one of the kids uh, there, he he had some exposure to D&D and the past of Dungeons and Dragons. So he was kind of like the dungeon master. He taught us, you know, how to create our characters, and we did. And I remember during one period of, I think it was study hall. We had a study hall period where we met. It wasn't in the library. It was more like an like an open area that didn't require everybody to be super quiet. And during that hour, we would work on our games and we were engaging games. And that's when we started. And we had, you know, I had my character. The other kids would have their characters. And that kind of grew into we would then meet up after school we would find an empty room in high school and we would then continue to play you know different characters and that sort of thing now let's keep in mind i went to a catholic high school and around this time one of the controversy surrounding Dungeons and Dragons was that there was a story in the news about a kid who apparently had either committed suicide or done something and they found in his room Dungeons and Dragons so they kind of associated the game with what happened to him forget the fact that the kid might have been troubled or clinically depressed or anything like that but it's one of those things that surrounded the game in terms of the game got this stigma for a while of it being a weird, satanic type of thing, which is completely and utterly ridiculous. But, as I mentioned before, little did we realize at the time, and it's kind of like, you know, when I earlier talked about Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd had a reputation, for even for kids my age, of being 
oh, that's the that druggy band, that 70s druggy band, you know, that kind of thing. So naturally, anything that you're told is bad for you, you're going to want to take a look at <laughs> because it's usually the opposite of what your parents or society wants you to do. Well, with D&D, I would say I didn't necessarily want to take a look at it because of that, because I was genuinely interested in the game. But I do remember that at the time there was that whole, oh, you're playing D&D and, you know, especially religious groups would start freaking out. I guess in a similar fashion to some how, you know, more recently, not to that extent, some, you know, crazy religious groups started freaking out about Harry Potter because there are witches and there's wizards and that's, you know, paganism and blah, blah, blah. You know, those kind of wackos running around the world. There was a situation running around that time. And again, looking back, we're doing this in a Catholic high school. Luckily, we were never approached seriously and asked what was going on. Uh, Most of the times I remember people like the janitor would be walking around and he would see us in a room and we would be like, he would be like, okay, I'll come back later. (laughs) Or maybe a teacher would come in and might ask what's going on and we'd say, oh, we're just playing a game. And they were like, okay, that's all right. Um, See you later. (laughs) So luckily, maybe they didn't know exactly what we were doing. And maybe if they knew exactly what we were playing, they would have, you know, consulted with the principal (laughs) to find out if I was okay or not. But it's funny when you think about this now. (laughs) Now, as far as the game goes, I at that time got as far, I think, that I bought a couple of the books. This is in the mid to early 80s. So I'm talking about high school, which means 84 to 88. I think that was my, that was my high school years. I did own, I believe I owned the player's handbook and probably Folia, which had all the monsters of the time that were available for you to fight against. I had created my own character. Like I said, I got myself my own dice. You know, you got to have your your multi-sided dice for the game. But that's as far as we went. We never got to the point where we would actually meet up at somebody's house and do like an all-night type of event or anything like that. And it lasted a pretty short period because unfortunately for this type of thing, you need a couple of people. And at that time, just like now, you know, I didn't know enough people to be able to do a game like that. For And I was never, you know, I was never, I never got that far in the game uh, to actually be the dungeon master and, and actually be creating these stories. But I do remember, you know, we at one point we would be sitting in the classroom and the dungeon master would be sitting in a slide at the teacher's desk. And the teacher's desk was, was elevated like six inches above everybody else so they can kind of look down on everyone. And he had his own dungeon master screen so he could look up, you know, all the stats without us seeing what was happening. He would be rolling his own rolls and we would be rolling our own rolls and, and kind of moving from that onward. Well, that was a long, long time ago. In the time in between, you know, in the 80s, I remember D&D was somewhat popular. Even in pop culture, we had, I remember there was a Dungeons & Dragons animated show that was really cool for the time. You know, you kind of recognize some of those characters that you were playing. I remember D&D would show up, I think, on some movies. I think E.T. has a scene where they're all playing, all the kids before they actually meet E.T., they're all playing in the kitchen, the, the older kids. They're playing some kind of role game, which might be d and I'm not sure. There was also a Dungeons & Dragons-inspired video game, I remember, called Dragon Slayer. Now, the thing about this game that made it unusual and different from most video games is the fact that you could actually select what would happen next. You would have options on this video game that would change the entire story, more or less. Now, it was very clunky, 
things happened on somewhat of a delay system because making those decisions in a video game format, in an RK format, again, we're not talking about home, we're talking about RK here. Based on what decision you made, the th things would go in different directions. And what I learned later on uh, as I got into Laserdiscs <laughs> many, many years later was that the game was based on a Laserdisc system in terms of uh, Laserdisc or, or Videodisc uh, system where you make your decisions and the system would then play a section of pre-recorded uh, material uh, on a Laserdisc or Laser or, or Disc type system uh, that would show you what it is that you just chose. So it's interesting that they even went the video game route. Again, this was very different. It was the it wasn't computer graphics. It was animation. You were watching on the video console in whatever place you happened to be in at the bowling alley or the the arcade. You were watching animation in a machine. You know, in a video game machine. Uh, it wasn't real, real, uh, you know, computer, you know, 8-bit or whatever bit we had back then. And I believe at one point they actually made a Dungeons & Dragons movie, which I'm pretty sure it was completely, completely horrible. Obviously, the fantasy genre had its little blips. You had your Hobbit animated film. You had your Willow. You had your Legend you know, there were some tries at the fantasy environments, your labyrinths, for example, but not until the Lord of the Rings, you know, Peter Jackson explosion that took place did we actually get into that world to be able to see it in a cinematic manner. Well, fast forward, God knows how many years, 30 plus years or something like that, maybe a little less than 30 years, and... My daughter starts asking me about Dungeons and Dragons. You know, and I tell her, yeah, you know, I used to play. Your mom used to play. You know, my, my wife used to play. She used to play with her friends. You know, similar situation. But they actually, actually I think they were actually able to, you know, meet at somebody's house and play with friends. Uh, so, you know, we both, you know, dipped into there, into that area at different times of our lives. And little by little, you know, she keeps asking me, you know, how do you play? What do you do? So I started digging around if I could find my old books. And, and I know my wife had, Kim had her own books too. So, you know, as a result of just like it's happened with a lot of my Star Wars toys and stuff, and stuff like that, as a result of our latest move, I think, as a result of this current move, somehow most of our books didn't make it. I do not know if we actually purged those books when we were getting rid of a lot of books, you know, so we wouldn't have to bring so many books with us because we had so many books at home. Or there's a possibility that the books got lost in the move. You know, when we moved to Florida, the horrible <laughs> moving company we ended up using uh, ended up losing some items, a couple of boxes, a couple of large items. And for all we know, they might have been there. Every now and then we realize, hey, where is the so-and-so? And then you're like, wait a minute, it's not here. Where is it? You know, not until you're looking for a certain item do you realize that, oh crap, it got lost in the move. Well, we didn't know what happened to our books. And at the same time, you know, I started to tell my daughter, you know what, let's let's give it a try. Let's see if we can play a game, uh, you know, soon. So as I'm scrambling looking for these books and I can't find them and my wife is having the same problem, she can't find her books, I decided that for Mother's Day, I decided that I was going to find those books, you know, on eBay. So I searched around to figure out which exactly she owned and I was able to find those original old, you know, 80s 
Dungeons and Dragons books. So I was able to pick up the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master Guide, and Fiend Folio, which we both happen to own, I believe, you know, at the same time, different locations, obviously. So we had those. So then I said, all right, well, I, I need to cram for this because I haven't done this in so long. I was never Dungeon Master. I don't know how things are figured out. I can kind of tell, you know. So I bought a used Dungeons & Dragons 4th edition for dummies. I know that currently I think Dungeons & Dragons is in its 5th edition, but at least the 4th edition is current enough that at least it will be cheap if I want to pick up some of the other books. And I did do that. I picked up to go along with my older ones that I had already recently re-picked up, you know, the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master Guide, the 4th edition ones. Then I also picked up a basic starter set, you know, the, the latest version of a starter set that they put out, which includes your basic rules, a basic campaign that you could play, and a set of dice, because that was the other thing. I remember that it's very handy to have everybody have their own dice. This way, you don't have to go back and forth and get back and forth, and it comes with its own dice. So great, I have two sets of dice. I ordered some other dice. They're coming from China, so it'll probably take about two months to get here, but the good thing is that they're only about $2 per set, so it's worth the wait. For two bucks a pop, it's worth the wait. The other thing I wanted to look for was a, a Dungeon Master screen, and I know there were some available, but the biggest problem that I kept finding is that I didn't know what information I needed. So looking at some YouTube videos, a lot of people would complain that, you know, this is a great screen, it's nice and short, it's not very too tall, so you're hiding behind everybody, but the information that's portrayed is not exactly the information you might necessarily want, so... I found a do-it-yourself video that showed you how to create your own screen with interchangeable interior information so you can update the sheets as you need them or you customize them completely on your own. So I did that. I then also wanted to create a grid because I wasn't necessarily thinking about playing in grid fashion where everybody moves through a grid, but I wanted the look of some kind of a terrain with grids so I can kind of position characters if need be so that the players could understand where everybody's standing in relationship to their adversaries or their environment. So I um, I went to uh, I went to Walmart and and, and bought some uh, fabric, some green fabric, kind of like a grass green looking. And with big rulers and sharpies, I made a huge grid, basically the size of my dining room table. So the other thing I did getting ready for the day that we were going to play was I started going through YouTube and I watched as many videos as I could on how to start a game. And there's a lot of really good videos out there. I am still trying to search for one that specifically goes through the process, the actual process of a dungeon master looking up information and doing the math on how many hits, when to check, you know, when to check, when not to check certain things, when to progress the story. So I've gotten a, a pretty basic idea of what's going on. I know that the basic, most important rule is when in doubt, make it up because you are the dungeon master, you're in charge, you make the rules. So last week, week we had our first game and it was basically myself my wife my son and my daughter I was the dungeon master so we I laid out all the stuff I had all the grids I gave everybody pre-made characters we didn't want to spend too much time creating characters at first because we just wanted to have a quick run at it we bought the mandatory pizza it had to be pizza you got to have pizza when you're playing D&D and, you know, we started a game and I laid out the felt, you know, so you have the fabric grid. I gave everybody these little players that my wife had, these little pewter fantasy players. And I guess they could be considered D&D. &D. Uh, so at least they kind of see reference to see who they are. And the other thing that I did was whenever we encountered creatures 
or monsters or anything like that, I dug into my old bins of action figures. And by that, I'm talking about all my Lord of the Rings, all of my Ray Harryhausen creatures, McFarland's scary monster-looking guys, not necessarily identifiable, but monstery enough that it's a monster. So every now and then what would happen is I would say, okay, you walk into this room and there's three goblins. So I would place in the board you know, on the table, three Lord of the Ring goblins. And it's like, okay, this goblin is attacking you and that goblin is attacking you. Then at a certain point, a giant spider comes. And then I grab a giant spider head again from my Lord of the Ring figures. I used X-File figures, McFarlane figures, all types of different type of figures in order to help with the representations of these characters. Now, I know that's not necessary. And I know a lot of people don't like to play that way. It's traditional, you know, more to kind of do it all in your head you have to imagine what these creatures are like but for this first time it it kind of worked i think and we did about a three-hour game which wasn't bad it was a nice start i was able to begin and end the story Uh, it wasn't a like a cliffhanger ending because i was thinking of doing something like that but didn't everybody seemed to have fun and they want to do it again and especially my daughter she's like okay i want to do it again because i know she wants to run some kind of game with her friends so she wants to learn from me how to do it and not only how to play but how to be the dungeon master or the person that is in charge of creating the story and and moving it forward so as i mentioned before this is a this is an interesting little side trip that we've taken into our our old D days i want to continue i hope we can do it Uh, like i said i'm waiting for a couple of more items to arrive just i think one more book and a couple of uh, sets of dice so everybody, everybody has their own dice and it was fun and it's interesting because, you know, as a dungeon master, there is certain pressure that is off your back because you don't have to make the life and death decisions and the interactions with your own other players. But you are progressing the story and you are trying to keep it entertaining and surprising in certain ways. So I was able to to kind of do that. You know, it's, it's kind of fun to kind of be able to sit back a little and watch the players progress the story themselves. They're the ones that are filling in all these gaps that you have, you know, with a basic storyline. And, you know, in the process, I'm thinking of future storylines where I can combine certain things. Maybe I can include some kind of time travel element to it or or multidimensional or alternate history type of, you know, typical sci-fi geeky stuff where you can all of a sudden your characters might show up on a completely different genre and they have to play as themselves. So interacting with a more modern setting, let's say. So I am thinking of doing that. We are gonna continue it. And as we progress, uh, I'll keep you guys informed. This is a different thing for me. I'm not a big box game fan in terms of, I know that we've tried a number of times to do, let's do box game night here. And and usually I'm, I'm like the biggest party pooper when it comes to box games, but this is a little different and it does bring us back, (laughs) some of us, uh, our older ones, to our childhood days of, you know, D&D. Well, I hope you guys enjoy today's show. I am planning to bring you some more music-related topics in the future. And we have a ton of movies coming out this summer that we just barely got started with. We'll go over a lot of those, and the ones we missed, as usual, we'll try to hit them on the way back when it comes to home video. When a lot of these films get put on Blu-ray or DVD, that's our chance to kind of circle back and hit some of those uh, movies that we didn't have the time to talk about. So on behalf of everybody here, I would like to thank you guys for continuing to listen to our show, and we will see you here next time at GeekFest Trends. Bye-bye, everybody.
seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.